welcome to episode three of Second Features. My name is Adrian, and this is... I am Laura. Uh, I am a lecturer in film at the University of Hull and also a historian of British cinema. And I'm a lecturer in film at Sussex University, and I write some stuff occasionally too. Um, <laughs> but uh, yes, that's it. We're here and we're glad to be back to do another episode. Uh, yeah, and today's episode is uh, a film which is very sort of obscure. Um, it's called The Man Who Haunted Himself, and it stars an actor who's actually not very obscure, Roger Moore, um, and is one of his first post-The Saint roles. Mm. Um, before we get into that, I'd just like to uh, thank everyone for listening uh, to our second episode, which was about Eskimo Nell. And I'd like to remind everyone that we're actually on Twitter now, and it's uh, at Second Features, if you want to follow us on Twitter. Yeah, let's let's see if we can get to 100 followers by uh, <laughs> after this episode comes out. That would be nice. We're not far We are close. Off. We are close. Yeah, it's going pretty well. Um, before we get into the main topic today, I just wanted to mention, um, it's quite off topic, but I wanted to mention uh, the sad news as we're recording that last week, Norman J. Warren, the uh, British horror director, passed away. And um, the reason I wanted to mention that is because I don't know if it's come up on here before, but I've been working on a book about Norman and with Norman for an embarrassingly long period of time now. Um, so it hit me pretty hard because I did get to know Norman over the last 10 years. And so I just wanted to briefly mention what a lovely man he was. Maybe at some point in the future we'll actually do one of his films on the podcast. You know, what a great guy Norman was, and he was a great director, but he was also just really nice. And everybody that has talked about him, who knew him, uh, that's been talking about it over the last week, has all just said what a great man he was. Um, have you ever seen any of his films, Laura? Um, yeah, a couple. And it would be okay. really good to do one of his films yeah. uh, on the podcast. I really agree. Uh, when is, I know I should never ask this question, but when is your book coming out? Yeah. <laughs> it's the question well, you're not supposed to ask. I mean, what's, it's really, what's frustrating and just shows how you should never put things off. Um, all the text is finished and we sent it all to the publisher. And I was putting it all together just as a PDF to send to Norman to show him that it was all done. And I was planning on emailing that to him the day when I woke up that morning and seeing all these messages I was getting from people oh, saying, God. have you heard the news? Yeah. yeah. So um, that's really sad. But yeah. uh, Norman Norman had been getting regular updates and he knew that we were coming close to finishing. I keep saying we because I've been working on this book with Adam Locks. Mm. So um, we, uh, yeah, we've been really, it's been a, labor of love for 10 years <laughs> um possibly and it will, longer it's, than, you're uh, near the finish line though aren't you yeah so it's with all it's with the publisher now and we're just sorting out all the images yeah it'll be nice for fans of his stuff to be able to read about him in detail and his work yeah so and it's mostly his own words the book is an oral history book mm. so we've spoken to dozens of people that worked with norman and many hours of conversations with norman himself that so they're this year for definite. Okay. I've been, been saying that for 10 years, but this is the year when it's going to happen. Yeah, I know that feeling, Adrian.
were looking at The Man Who Conned Himself, which is uh, a film I kind of regret leaving so late to watch, actually. Uh, I only saw it for the first time, you know, in advance of this podcast, although I, I've wanted to see it for a long time. Um, so the film stars Roger Moore uh, as a business executive whose life kind of takes a turn for the interesting. Um, before I get into that, I want to uh, introduce uh, who our guest will be today. So our guest is Carolyn Rickards, Dr. Carolyn Rickards. Uh, she's from the University of Bristol. And Carolyn is also a historian of British cinema. And she's also uh, a historian of fantasy cinema. Uh, I met Carolyn when she was working on um, an academic project about colour in British cinema. And one of her case studies was The Man Who Haunted Himself. So she's written a bit about that for a book called Six Days British Cinema Reconsidered. So we'll be hearing from Kaz later um, and she'll uh, we'll kind of hopefully have a chance to ask her about uh, the sort of visual style of the film, which is very different from a lot of other films from this period in that it's almost it has an almost giallo-esque focus on colour and light, uh, which is kind of fascinating. Mm -hmm. uh, so the film uh, is about a business executive played by Moore who is pretty successful in life he's got a big house um, a beautiful wife a uh, couple of kids um, he's involved in a car crash and uh, he's taken to hospital and we see as he's kind of being uh, you know brought uh, kind of saved from death by the doctors on the heartbeat monitor we suddenly see two heartbeats <laughs> That was a bloody thing. So we've got two heartbeats there now. Oh, that's better. And then, of course, he, he gets well, he's released from hospital, but then he starts... There's a kind of uncanniness where he uh is basically kind of confronted with a situation where he thinks he has a double or someone pretending to be him or is it him we're not really sure and if he does have a double then his double is quite different from the character he's playing uh at the start of the film mm. um so it's really interesting that roger moore is playing really against type in this but he's also playing two type so our main protagonist is kind of quite yeah, he's really mild-mannered. He's uh, not that confident. He has issues at home. He's definitely not someone who um, is interested in women. There's a woman who tries to come on to him uh, that he knows. But he... And his own wife. And his own wife as well. Yeah. His own <laughs> wife is really upset with him because he's not kind of sexually interested in her. Mm. And we are used to seeing Roger Moore play a character who is essentially a womanizer in the Bond films. Yeah. So he's kind of really playing... Uh, very, very against that type by, you know, playing a nice guy who is very mild. It's no good of you. I don't want you to make love to me. You're a super girl, you know that, don't you? No, I'm not. I'm an average grasping married woman. What am I? You're an above average overworked young executive. Who doesn't make love to his wife very often. I didn't say that. I said it for you. Doesn't matter. Doesn't, but I don't love you. 
No, I know. We're just used to each other, I suppose. You suppose this happens to lots of people? I expect so. But I don't care about other people. I only care about us. What's going to happen to us? What else do you think? I don't know. I only hope that whatever it is, it doesn't last too long, that's all. Yeah, it's really interesting because if we'd have spent, because we spend most of the film with him, like the original character. Yeah, the original what, and the double. The double is the one who's more like the Roger Moore that we we love and are used to. But we hardly <laughs> we ever... love and are used yeah. to. That's a bit damning with faint praise. <laughs> yeah, I suppose, but but that other that that other Roger Moore, we hardly see him at all, and I think that's going because if the film was told from the other perspective, <clears> it would be much more conventional more um so it's really fascinating that we spend most of our time with a very different kind of roger moore than we're used to yeah but whenever we get glimpses of that other guy whenever we see the other guy it's very clear which double he's playing um Mm. and this is kind of down to roger moore's acting ability uh and you know this film was meant to be in a sense roger moore's first serious acting role after the saint and it was kind of advertised that way in the press book as well um but actually we do we do kind of get a sense of the range of murr's performance because when mm. he's his he's not really evil the double he's just a bit suave isn't he he's a bit suave and a bit sexy but we can mm-hmm. tell by his eyes by his face the little eyebrow that goes up you know the the eyebrow the eyebrow thing <laughs> well, that i'm doing is, it right uh, now yeah <laughs> well I, when um spitting image used to do roger moore and they had this joke of it he only had three ways, like three acting performances. And one was left eyebrow up. The other was right eyebrow up. And then if he needed an especially big performance, he would do both eyebrows. <laughs> both and eyebrows up. Yeah, that was that was all you got out of Roger Moore. Taking it but, to the next level. Yeah. But here he's, uh, yeah, he's very different. Yeah. And you just, and when he's playing his sort of button down, ordinary, or, you know, our main protagonist, uh, just all the, all the sexual energy sucked out of him. Like mm. all of every, all of his suave, all of his nouse is just gone. <laughs> it's amazing how he's able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, really, and the, the, the costume as well, the, the, the typical bowler hat, umbrella, pinstripe suit. You know, he's playing the stereotype of the boring British businessman. Mm. Um, until later on in the film, when he he's persuaded that he needs to give this up and he puts on the most late 60s early 70s suit you've ever seen <laughs> is it and the most br- late 60s suit yeah. you've ever seen <laughs> bright, most brightly colored tie and uh, but you can tell how uncomfortable he is wearing that because he looks he looks so out of character which is really funny yeah um but i mean he is like okay so the director is basil dearden who hmm. um rather ominously uh actually died a year after this film was released in a car crash uh, now yeah, the man who on the him... same the same bit of motorway where they filmed the actual crash in the film no i didn't know that really yeah the m the m4 was the where same that... bit of motorway yeah apparently well that's what roger moore always said that it was the same stretch of motorway because it was the wow. m4 towards heathrow and that's where they filmed it and that's where um the director had his fatal crash which is a bit strange Bloody hell. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, Dearden's directorial style, he's associated with um, a certain kind of 50s cinema, would that be fair to say? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's done some great films, but um, none that I don't think any that you would necessarily say were horror films. No. The, fil- 
the film I most associate, well, apart from Dead of Night, I suppose, but that's a different kind of horror film. But the films that I associate him with are The Blue Lamp and Victim. Mm. Yeah, so they're kind of socially socially conscious, quite mm. intellectual films, which which are really embedded in 50 society. Like, yeah. I know Victim 61, but it's very mm. much of that. So yeah, like, The Man Who Haunted Himself has all those trappings of business and the 50s and a certain kind of living and family life and success. And our main character is very much that as well. Mm. But at the same time, we've got this um thriller plot this almost horror narrative all this this kind of quite inventive visual stuff in terms of the way it's shot and the way it uses color um so in a way it's it's really embedded in the 50s in Dearden mm -hmm. style but it's also kind of quite inventive at the same time yeah and I mean, roger moore as well is never somebody that you would think of as being particularly progressive no. um, i mean even with the the saint it's all very, it's not particularly swinging, you know. I always yeah. felt like the Saint is, it feels like something from the very early 60s rather than from the end of the 60s. Mm. And Moore never really appeared to be that much in touch with the counterculture. Films, I mean, but, you know, or anything I, like that. I don't know, apart from the like the light show bits and the color bits and the odd odd hints towards 70s horror then it is very mm. much like an old-fashioned text that's yeah. bypassed swinging london somehow mm. uh it, i i couldn't really place the date unless i looked it up it's like could it be 1958 <laughs> could it yeah. be you know 1968 i mean has roger moore ever been in a film where he wasn't wearing a suit he just uh, i can't no. imagine him in anything particularly uh, mm. casual i mean even when he's in a unless it's a safari suit i suppose but like yeah. he's always been that kind of character i think um and even in the persuaders which he did just after this he's yeah. always very well dressed and he always seems to be that kind of character yeah but um, i mean it is conservative but it's not mm. unsubversive and that's where i think the plot about um you know, business and double dealing and the city comes in. So yeah. Moore's character uh, is a successful businessman. And we first see him in a, you know, we see him at the start of the film in a board meeting, which goes on for a while. You're thinking, mm -hmm. why are we sitting in the middle of a board meeting <laughs> with all these kind of old white guys who are very posh and have RP accents or mm -hmm. surrounded by wood paneling? Why are we doing this? And um, I actually think it's one of those films that's saying something about uh you know a certain class of people but also kind of about the film industry and how conservative it is yeah. so an interesting fact about the man who haunted himself is that one of the guys who wrote it was brian forbes who was oh. a director who um mm. did some really notable films in the 60s but then at the end of the decade he took over as the head of emi films now emi had come in at the end of the 60s um and bought up so ABC Associated British Pathy Pick uh, Corporation. Yeah, I probably mangled that, but anyway. He, <laughs> anyway, basically, EMI was the British film industry, in a sense, by the end of the decade. Right. Yeah. And Brian Forbes was the head of EMI Films. And he's writing this script about this bunch of fuddy-duddies sitting in a boardroom who don't like change. And mm. um, his accounts of being at EMI were essentially him being surrounded by a bunch of conservative fuddy-duddies who don't like change. So no, he's like, he's he's kind of like, uh, I think he's criticizing in a sense, 
um, the establishment. Uh, and that's something that Paul Moody picks up on in his book about EMI films, right. EMI and the limits of British cinema. So there's like a kind of, you know, a sly satire of that's like, interesting. film, the film industry, and maybe like the establishment, but not enough that you'd really notice it. Mm. And I suppose you could also make a connection if you're going to do that between the story of sort of uncertain identities and uh, almost sort of body snatching with um, Brian Forbes' Stepford Wives, which was a few years later. Oh, yeah. There's sort of similar issues about people being replaced. Yeah. I suppose. Um, yeah, that's the, central ten that's the central theme of the film, isn't it? Mm. It's also, I mean, it's kind of harking back to Jekyll and Hyde. Um, mm. And it's based on a novel called The Strange Case of Mr. Pelham, which again is sort of, yeah, recycling that Jekyll and Hyde plot and turning it into something else. Um, this film was also, uh, it was an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Um, sorry, the, the novel it's based on was oh, an episode right. of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, I think. Oh, I've never um, seen that. So it's, there's like links to Hitchcock or at least a certain kind of um, TV crime thriller. So this, this whole thing about doubles and um, the whole kind of thriller aspect of it and the whole kind of 50s style of it kind of reminds me of, you know, 50s crime movies and mm. Hitchcock and uh, yeah, stuff like that. Edgar Wallace thrillers and whatnot. Yeah, so you can definitely, um, you could see this in black and white uh, with the Edgar Wallace theme playing and it could just be an hour long. I also felt, a I mean, it felt a little bit sort of Twilight Zone as well. It's got that sort yeah. of, there's a slightly possibly science fiction edge to yeah. it because oh, yeah. of all, all the sort of surgery sequences and things in the hospital. Um, there's the, the thing with the two heartbeats appear on the, whatever that machine is called, the machine that goes ping. Oh, uh, yeah. No, I... I um... The Twilight Zone thing uh, you reminded me of because it's so Twilight Zone, isn't it? Mm. Like I half expect Rod Serling to turn up at the end yeah. and give us a you know a moral tale of smoking yes. a cigarette. Yeah, uh, Mr. Pelham is about to enter the Twilight Zone. <laughs> but I thought, but, but what's interesting is the suggestion is given that these two characters exist before the accident, because the accident seems to occur because the second Mr. Pelham is already coming out. He's the one who unbuckles the seatbelt and floors it on the car. And we actually get a shot where the car crossfades with the sports car, mm. which is the car that then the second Mr. Pelham is driving later in the film. So this split personality, although the, the, the kind of we, the, the plot suggests that these this split occurred because of he died on the operating theatre and then he came back as two different people. But that second one is already there. So is Pelham... Does he have the split personality already? And it just took, he needed the accident to bring him out. Um, yeah. I don't know. I thought that was quite interesting that the second character, the evil Pelham, was already taking over before the accident occurred. Um, He's not evil, though. He's just suave, I think. Well, I don't know. <laughs> he is pretty, a bit evil. He is pretty, um, but he's a bit cagey, isn't he? He's a bit. Yeah. Cagey. I mean, the whole thing with uh, <laughs> this sort of double dealing with his um, business associates you know he's got this whole there's a takeover because they've got this product that they've invented that they're trying to keep secret and they're involved in a takeover and there's that, that whole side of it where he's 
in talks with um i'm forgetting everybody's names but he's in talks with somebody from the other company yeah it's very like it's almost like 80s corporate like he's yeah. he's a double dealing businessman who's uh yeah. that's just kind of the way things work in the city sort of thing yeah and although, oh that's it john carson is the the guy who plays the guy in the other company that he's been secret he's, he's been having talks with i mean i i did i did check out a little bit of that that subplot um mm. because it had to do with business business <laughs> so yeah so the evil i'm going to call him evil the evil pelham has been negotiating a role for himself in the new company by leaking information about this new product that they've invented meanwhile the good pelham is um trying to block the takeover because he thinks somebody must be leaking information so he's he ends up causing an investigation into himself so there has been a leak well i don't know i'm getting too old for this jungle how can it happen pill come on charles espionage isn't all james bond and the majesty's secret service industry goes in for it too you know they could be shooting at us right now from across the street infrared film rifle max pick up every word look it's obvious that something's going on though god knows i don't want to believe it so we have to take decisions it's inconceivable that there could have been a leak at board level so where could it originate it sounds a lot funnier than it plays out i think yeah it is <laughs> you just feel sorry for this poor guy who doesn't understand what's going on and it's actually yeah. himself that's doing it um which is uh I think he plays the confusion really well. I feel they could have made more of that, but I just enjoyed Moore's performance between Good and Evil Pelham so much. Mm. Um, but I think I take your point about the car crash happening because there was already Evil Pelham coming out. And clearly yeah. that's what we see at the start, isn't it? Like we've got that manic grin that Roger Moore is wearing as he's mm -hmm. driving. Um, and that also plays into the whole psychology thing. And um, again, you know, this is like, a classic TV thriller text from the late 50s, early 60s usually has some mm. a lot of plots involving uh, the psyche, psychology, the self. Um, it was just a really popular thing to to deal with in thrillers like this. So we yeah. have like the secret evil Pelham who emerges from his personality. And then um, the good Pelham goes to see a psychiatrist who is every psychiatrist you've ever seen. Uh, <laughs> film or tv show in the 60s he's he's mental he's got askew glasses and he's wearing a, a bow tie his clothes are squinting and a he's... terrible scottish accent really terrible scottish accent yeah i can i can yeah. be arbiter of that well mr pelham we seem to be faced with several alternatives do we not first of all there is the possibility however unlikely that there is an actual double dog in your footsteps if that is the case i can be a very little help to you but uh... Could there be another explanation? There could. Have you ever heard of illusion de souci? Illusion of doubles. That's how the French psychiatrist Capgras describes this clinical condition, souci. French for double. How does it affect me? You could be suffering from this sort of psychosis. Illusion of doubles. I could? Yes, indeed. Misidentification with a familiar person, in this case yourself, is a classical symptom in these cases. Is it? I have a patient in hospital who suffers delusional misidentification. Every time his wife comes to visit him, he claims she is not his wife, but resembles her as a double. Interesting, eh? 
And yeah, and he's played by Freddie Jones, who pops up in films like this all the time. He's he's great at making cameos. Just he'll steam seal for a couple of scenes and then disappear again. Um, yeah, he does steal and, the scene, doesn't he? Yeah, he is great. He's also in um, that film that you and I both wrote something about, um, Assault. Is he? It, where, yeah, he's the journal. He's the seedy journalist who's looking for a story. Oh, right, okay. In Assault. I mean, and again, he just turns up for a couple of scenes, to, throws in a great performance. Um, it was just around this time that he also played Frankenstein's monster in one of the Hammer films. Okay. He was just a really busy character actor right up until he died. One of the last things he did was the um, League of Gentlemen Christmas special. <laughs> and he's Toby Jones's dad, of course. So, you know so many facts. Yeah, yeah. Freddie Jones is <laughs> awesome. So, uh, I mean, I want to talk about, because I think there's there's a lot of bits of this film that are shot in really interesting ways. Um, mm. Maybe we should talk with uh, Carolyn about that later. Yeah. Um, but did you want to uh, talk about how the film was reviewed, Adrian? Because its reception wasn't that great, was it? No, it's a real shame. And I, I mean, it just goes to show that very often films come out before their time and people are not really ready for them. Um, so the, the main review, again, I've come back to the monthly film bulletin and just the opening sentence is so damning. The Man Who Haunted Himself is one of the first productions in a programme designed to give new blood to the British cinema, which I think comes back to what you were saying about the whole EMI thing. Um, on this evidence, the patient seems unlikely to survive. Oh, no. Yeah. So he's uh, the reviewer really is not into this film at all. Uh, it talks about Basil Dearden is played, placed by all the tired conventions of the British 50s psychological thriller. And the result is deadly dull and more than a little ludicrous when colourful minor characters like Freddie Jones's twitching, pill-swallowing Scottish psychiatrist are given their head. See, things that we like about the yeah. film now uh, are things they didn't like. The dialogue is consistent only in its banality. The colour processing and special effects are abominable. I disagree. That's ridiculous. I disagree. Stylistically, the film might well have been made in the 50s. Well, well we, fair it's enough. kind yeah. of... Yeah. <laughs> Since Dearden has not yet progressed beyond that tedious old scene-changing device of the visual hyphen. What on earth does visual hyphen mean? I don't even know what that's talking about. The visual about. hyphen. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so, uh, yeah, very damning. Don't trust MFB, especially not for anything that's vaguely fantasy. Or well, this is it. Anything, <laughs> anything genre they don't yeah. like, unless it's got subtitles, in which case they might be slightly more ooh, ooh. kind. But yeah, a lot of sort of snobbery and no mention really at all of Roger Moore's performance. No, and that and, was really bloody good. Yeah, um, and this is one of the first times, I think, that Roger Moore had a starring role in a film because he was still primarily a television actor. And obviously The Saint, he did more than 100 episodes of The Saint and he directed several of those episodes himself. Uh, but I mean, going right back to the 50s where he was doing all those kinds of shows like Ivanhoe, you know, he was a TV guy. He wasn't a cinema star yet. Well, he would go on to be, but the man who haunted him, even though it didn't get well received and kind of sunk, was actually the film that he quoted as being his favourite of all of his mm. films. He said, actually, I got to act in that and it's yeah. it's my favourite film I've ever done. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it's a completely different Roger Moore from what we were getting on TV and what he would become best known for in, mm. in Bond and then other films like that. Yeah, he's so. he's a bit one note in Bond, I think. Mm-hmm. I know people are gonna like um be But it's a by great that, note. It's a great note, yeah. But it's it's not the range but, that we see in the man who haunted himself. No. I mean he was basically a comedian. Roger Moore was hilarious. I'm mm. lucky enough to have met him. I'm sorry, just have to get that out. Oh of God, Adrian! This is another one of those films. <laughs> I've actually, I've, I've actually, actually met him and him I, and her and him. I've met two people that are in this film. Who who else did you meet? Yeah, Roger Moore is a very funny man. He was a comedian who didn't get put in comedy very often, but the, he turned the James Bond films into comedies, really, by his style and his performance. But in real life, if you ever heard him speak, he was just hilarious, and his biography, his autobiography, was very funny as well and i was lucky enough i've got a photo of me with roger moore that i'll tweet when this episode goes out if anybody wants to see it um but i managed to sneak into the green room at the bfi on his i think it was his 80th birthday or his 81st birthday and i managed to get in by giving him a birthday present what did you give him it it was a copy of an old picture goer magazine from about 1956 with an article about a young unknown roger moore who at that point was best known for modelling knitwear. Modelling knitwear? Yeah, he was a knitwear model. Uh, do, you, do you have any pictures? Are there pictures? Uh... I've, got, I've got pictures of that as well. Um, <laughs> Can you tweet those? Yeah, I'll tweet those out. <laughs> Thank so you. So I think he went to Italy to do some bit parts. Um, so, and there was an interview with him, this British actor in Italy. So anyway, I'd got a copy of this Picture Girl magazine and I gave it to him for his birthday present. And he was really pleased with it. So I, that was my in to get to meet him and get a picture oh, of cool. him so yeah, that was that, very cool that's a very cool story yeah he was very but he was just he was just really nice um and i have also met john carson a couple of times who is the guy that he's the evil pelham is negotiating this mm. new deal with that's john carson he's perhaps best known for his hammer films he did plague of the zombies um that was one of his and um he's also a very nice man did loads of cool stuff. He was in the, the TV show Thriller that Brian Clemens wrote mm. um, and has lots of interesting credits. But anyway, those mm-hmm. are my two claims to fame with this film and I'll shut up now about that. <laughs> <laughs> that was good though. I like that but story. About I can't, Roger yeah, I can't help myself. So, uh, but there is, there is a, there's a line in this uh, where he's double dealing um, and negotiating. And I think it's the evil Pelham who says, this isn't Her Majesty's Secret Service, or this isn't James Bond on Her Majesty's Secret Service, uh, which I thought was funny. Yeah, they name-checked James Bond, but this is three years before, so there's no way that it was an in-joke. I no, mean, no, I'm, it wasn't. No, it's just kind of one I'd of those need to, uh, I'd need to look coincidences. At the, yeah, I'd need to look at the history because I, I can't remember whether Roger Moore was offered the role earlier than this, but couldn't take it because of his commitments. Um, but this is obviously... the. This came out the year after On Her Majesty's Secret Service and then Sean Connery came back to do another one. So it wasn't until 73 when Roger Moore did it. So it's possible. No, it's not. It's not likely, though. I think James no. Bond is just really popular in the 60s. And Well, yeah, they're still talking about it. and Yeah. Men in suits double dealing like lends itself to that. But I just thought yeah. it was quite funny. Yeah. And it's that's one of the few things in this film that's anything like any kind of cultural contemporary reference 
most of the film it could be at any time at anywhere because of the pinstripe suits that are for sort of quite timeless and the music is mostly not pop or anything like that it's kind of i got i got giallo vibes from the soundtrack as well did you, mm. did you all that's missing is some murders by somebody with black gloves i suppose yeah and the the colors of the outfits as well yeah like very very giallo there's a there's a scene where um pelham's wife wears a red suit and she oh yeah it's kind of her outfits are, are what you would expect to find maybe in a giallo mm. film i mean yeah, and i guess we'll talk about this later with kaz but yeah the the color does feel like i mean i'm not going to quite say mario bava but there are certain imagery and use of colours that do bring to mind those sorts of Italian films of this period. Yeah, I mean, I was just, out of, again, coincidence, just watching Vertigo before I watched this. And I was doing a sort of looking at colour and costume in Vertigo. Um, and The Man Who Haunted Himself, again, has, it has really strong colour coding in terms of how we're meant to read it. And it's mm. also got the theme about, the psychological theme about doubles, about mistaken identity. Uh, so actually, it's not a world away from, even though most people wouldn't put them in the same ballpark vertigo. Uh, yeah, it kind of is of that tradition. It deals with similar themes. Mm. Um, and it's got that, yeah, the link between psychology and colour, you know. So when uh, Good Pelham, if you like, tries to cure himself on the advice of a psychiatrist by just switching it up a bit and having a bit of fun, yeah. putting on a different suit... He turns up to work in a pink, shiny, oh, paisley tie and yeah. a, a really sort of outsized light grey suit. Um, or is it a pink shirt? And a, it's some, it, I mean, it's terrible. Uh, but that, like the, the way that colour is linked to psychology. Mm. I would love to turn up to work wearing that exact outfit. You, there's nothing stopping you. <laughs> <laughs> Why just, is stopping just, you from well, turning just... up to work wearing that outfit? just the shops still being closed i guess just wait till the uh, men's outfitters are open again and i'll be down there uh, <laughs> i think it's quite a high maintenance look though adrian uh yeah. the tailored three-piece suit uh mm -hmm. with waistcoat and shirt like it's very stiff not yeah. not very lockdown friendly no. <laughs> so uh, the film man who haunted himself was one of three films which were the first ones that brian forbes commissioned um <clears throat> for emi films when he took it over the talk of mergers in the film The Man Who Haunted Himself is no accident, I think, because mm. EMI had just had a merger or subsumed a couple of other British companies, ABPC and Anglo Amalgamated. So I don't think that's an accident. I think that's quite knowing. Uh, but the first three films that came out, so the other ones were And Soon the Darkness and Hoffman. Uh, none of these films did particularly well, so Forbes got criticised and it was felt that this new programme of films from EMI weren't very good. I mean, The Man Who Haunted Himself wasn't distributed that well. Nobody, it was quite lacklustre. I think Roger Moore said that, you know, the, the distributors weren't really uh, on it, um, which is a shame because it could possibly have found a much larger audience than it did. Yeah, I suppose it, it's not necessarily a film that you would know how to market. Who is the audience for that, perhaps? they And because Roger Moore was not a big star, that might his name might not be enough on the poster to bring an audience in and maybe i mean if we look at the like the the monthly film bulletin review would suggest that people didn't initially quite know how to read the film and so um, that might have the marketing people may have had equal problems 
and uh, that may have led to its poor box office as well. Potentially. Um, I think that Roger Moore was pretty well known, though, wasn't he? Like, the press book does talk about, mainly mm. it focused on him, Roger yeah. Moore, uh, because he's been in The Saint um, and he's transitioning to film. But apparently, yeah, the star, the star attraction didn't really help um, in the end. No, and I suppose you could look at some of the other films that Roger Moore made even after he was a star. If they weren't James Bond films, they didn't necessarily bring it. They were kind of relegated to B-movie status a bit more. Mm. Once Bond came in, he was kind of pretty much tied to that for the rest of his life. Yeah, no, it is a shame because, I mean, I think now the film has been much more recognised and reclaimed and written about. Um, and obviously, as we're going to talk to Cares about that, it's been studied quite a lot and it's had a nice Blu-ray restoration, um, which is really good. And Roger Moore has even done a commentary with Brian Forbes. Oh, I uh, want to hear that commentary. I didn't get the Blu-ray. I watched it on Amazon, so I haven't got oh, the commentary. Okay. No, I haven't listened to it yet either, but I would imagine it's very funny. Oh, uh, I can't wait. I'm going to buy it. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, so it's there's definitely a lot more recognition now and it's just a pity that Often it takes about 40 years for some of these films to, to be recognised. So today on the podcast, we have a special guest who has actually written about uh, the use of colour in The Man Who Haunted Himself, Dr. Carolyn Rickards. Although you prefer Kaz, don't you? Uh, <laughs> That's my Twitter bio name, yes. Oh, yeah, okay. um, either's fine. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> So Kaz, you um, you actually uh, did your PhD on fantasy films, didn't you? I did, yes. It was um, back at UEA, so that was um, on, on contemporary fantasy films and British cinema from the period um, 2000 onwards. So with like the rise of films such as the Harry Potter franchise. Um, so th that's kind of where my interest in fantasy and British cinema arise from, really. Yeah, the interest in British cinema, like you worked on the uh, Eastman Colour Project, which is about colour in British cinema. Uh, what That yeah. was from like, colour in British cinema from what, 1955 to 85, was it? That's right, yeah. So it was the in it was tracking the introduction and development of Eastman Colour um, in British cinema um, throughout that period, um, tracking its development, how it was used by filmmakers, sort of the aesthetic qualities of that. Um, and, it, and it covered a, a wide, a very broad range of films. So everything from feature films through to independent um, and amateur filmmaking, also tackled issues around restoration and that kind of thing as well. It was a project which was AHRC funded, went on for three years. The results of that, we've got a publication that's, um, fingers crossed, I think coming out later this year with Bloomsbury. Um, and that's been co-authored with my colleagues, Sarah Street, Keith M. Johnston and Paul Frith. Cool. Um, we'll put a link to the project in the podcast notes if anyone wants to go out and uh, look that stuff up. Could you tell us what the difference is between Eastman Colour and Technicolor? It's to do with the, with the processing of it. So um, Technicolor was a three strip camera process um, which was um, developed um, very popular in the 1930s and 40s. Um, Eastman Colour was a single strip uh, camera processing technique, uh, which came along in the early 1950s, um, developed by Kodak in the United States. And um, basically, because Technicolor um, cameras were quite clunky, quite difficult to use, um, over time, Eastman Color kind of gained ground in terms of majority of film stock that was used after sort of the early 1950s onwards. 
Technicolor, um, I think, continued um, its printing processes for some time after that. Um, but certainly by the sort of like late 60s, um, Eastman Color was the main camera stock that was used. Yeah. Um, so and a film like um, The Man Who Haunted Himself, um, if you look at the credits for that, it will say that it's a Technicolor film mm. in the opening credits. It's likely that it was actually filmed on Eastman Color, given the, the budget of the film and the, the year that it came out mm. um, and was actually printed um, by Technicolor Laboratories here in the UK. Um, so the, the issue, like Eastern Color uh, films tend to degrade, don't they? So like Technicolor, those original Technicolor films filmed on those cameras with the three strips, like they still look pristine these days, don't they? Whereas Eastman mm. Colour, you go back to old films in the archive and they're just pink, like they're all, they're all, <laughs> they, the, the colour sort of degrades, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, that was one of the prop, that was one of the key, uh, I guess, problems with the film stock, but uh, it, it was kind of discovered over time, basically that yes, it had this tendency to, to turn salmon pink uh, the pink tint basically um, mm. as time went on um, and become more perishable as a result so yeah the color quality is definitely different um, not as vivid not as bright there's a, there's a different aesthetic quality between these two color processing techniques as well mm. technicolor is known for its very lavish garish um, bright colors eastman color kind of more of a faded kind of um, aesthetic look I guess you could say um, yeah. But by the, I, I should say really by the 1960s, certainly in terms of British cinema um, and the sort of the move towards more kind of colour processing, I think this was more and more a preferred look of many films by mm. filmmakers that came out during that time as well. So was Eastman Colour as a production process, did that make it easier to go out on location? Or did it need less lighting, for example, yeah. than the Technicolor? Yeah, absolutely. So the cameras were lighter um they could be then more transportable so location filming which again was becoming more the, the move away from studio filming to more mm. location filming during this time became um a sort of a priority and the eastman color stock could be using more lightweight cameras um so whether that's more sort of handheld cameras and that type of thing it was just much more easier for filmmakers to go out and about and film but um, the man he haunted himself. I mean, that's a lot of that. There's lots of location shots on that uh, as well, and that's Eastman color. But the when I watched the restoration, the color was still so vivid. Like I watched it on uh, Prime, but Network have their kind of rest restored release of it. But the color was just so jarring. Like it seems to stand apart from other films from that period, like the you know late sixties, nineteen seventy. Um, and it still looks so vivid, some of it as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, I guess it's so unexpected in the film as well, because you have this long run in where there's, you know, very, there's, there's no indication that this is going to happen. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't want to give away too many spoilers for people who haven't seen the film. Um, but the last 10 minutes just go completely OTT. Uh -huh. um, and yeah, the, the use of colour is quite extraordinary. And you're right, it does actually hold up in terms of the, the, the vividness of it, you know, the, the, the different colors, the blues, reds, mm. yellows, greens that flash up on the screen. Well, it kind of reminded me of, even though people would consider them very, from di very different categories of films that we rate Vertigo, just in the way that it used color with psychology, um, like really vivid colors to symbolize different things, uh, which I thought was kind of interesting. Absolutely. Um, yeah, um, it, it sort of descends into this Hitchcockian nightmare, surrealism, like surrealist nightmare towards the end. Um, 
and the color, as you said, is, is very similar to, to sort of the, the colors that Hitchcock would have used in a film like Vertigo. I guess this, this, is, this really comes across in the critical response to the film at the time. Um, as I said, it was kind of, it was, it was slammed by a lot of critics. There's a, there's a comment from Stanley Price in the Observer newspaper who says that the film is more like 1940s Pinewood than it is 1970s <laughs> Elstree. Um, oh. And it's making a reference back to this, you know, studio era of films such as Powell and Pressburger and so on, where mm. very vivid colour is, is used. And that would have been the Technicolor days um, as well. And, and it does hark back to that in many ways. Which um, I think is a good thing. I wouldn't have used that as a criticism. Person. Yeah, I think it's a really good thing. That's an awesome <laughs> thing. <laughs> and, and, it, and it's interesting how that sort of critical canon changes, isn't it? Right. Mm. Because, you know, back um, when the film came out in the early 70s, I don't think Powell and Pressburger were considered in, in the same kind of way that they are today, that they still hadn't gone through that revisionist critique of their films and their filmmaking. So anything that looked back, backwards, mm. I think was considered to be old fashioned, stayed derivative you know not not cutting edge or trying to trying to go forward yeah that's that's yeah that came across in the reviews I read as well like oh it feels like the 50s it's really old-fashioned and Basil Dearden is associated with it I guess a kind of late 50s early 60s kind of film yeah so it does kind of feel a bit maybe 10 years late when you watch the film in terms of its themes and what it's dealing with a little bit maybe Absolutely. I think I think it I think it definitely suffered from unfortunate timing in terms of its release. If the film had come out 10, 15 years earlier, I think it would have had a very different critical reaction to it. Mm. Um, and, and as you said, the colour um, that's used in the film, I mean, the film was, was lambasted for you know, its special effects as well, uh, its visual effects. So mm. um, it was considered to be a dodgy camera work, you know, especially in the opening <laughs> sequence with the car accident happens. I love that. I um, love the camera work in that sequence. <laughs> <laughs> but if you if you watch it, you can see that it's obviously done in two on two separate days. So maybe some of the filming was done on location. Some of it was done at a test center or in a private ground somewhere because the weather conditions change as well. At one moment <laughs> he's driving along and it's dry and the next minute it cuts and it's and it's wet road mm, surface cool. oh my god I didn't <laughs> I didn't notice that I well I was really taken by how obviously they didn't have a lot of money for this but instead of showing a car crash they showed tight shots close-ups of the wheel and the car and um you know various bits of the road and I thought it was it actually worked really well it was quite chaotic so I, yeah I didn't notice the whole continuity thing <laughs> and I suppose there's also in the driving scenes there's some rear projection as well which would add to that sort of 50s studio oh, yeah. feel yeah. of the whole thing as well but obviously with the the fact that now this film is 50 years old means that when I watch it I don't think oh well, that looks old-fashioned you know mm. why are they doing rear projection it all just feels like it's part of that type of film anyway but maybe yeah, by 1970 when they'd started to see films like The French Connection and Bullet and stuff I guess Roger Moore driving whatever that car was in a studio just seems a bit old hat yeah. <laughs> even the car is old I think it's like yeah. a, a rover or something but but I think that that is interesting again because it's meant to signify him as being having old-fashioned values mm. yeah he, he's a man from a different era he's he's the respectable businessman with a loving wife and family he, he drives a sensible brown rover you know his his alter ego drives that that blue silvery 
sports car the overcompensating car yeah exactly yeah (laughs) (laughs) um so it the the color is used in that way in 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 just in that that sense in the costume and the production design i think to kind of align harold pelham roger moore's character to 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 more of an old-fashioned different era basically which is which is part of the themes that are explored in the film yeah, so I mean, the that's the the good Pelham. The Adrian's calling him the evil Pelham, but I like him. Um, the evil Pelham is like is not old fashioned, is he? He's more of a um, an up and coming corporate negotiator type person. He's quite savvy. He's uh, like you talked in your chapter on uh, on this, Kaz, about yeah. the social climber, like the these films in the sixties with about kind of men who were on the make in a sense like is Roger Moore's evil Pelham a man who is on the make yes I think that's that's the short answer yeah um Andrew Spicer has written quite a lot about this about sort of masculine identity in the 1960s and how there's a, a real set of films basically sort of bookended by from, from films like Room at the Top um all the way through to the the late 60s um early 70s with films like The Reckoning and The Man Who Haunted Himself could be fitted within that this idea of the, and it's definitely the man, the male, the man on the, on the make, trying to go up the social ladder, trying to better himself, basically. And, and how that changes. Um, I, I write about this a little bit in the, in the, in the chapter um, for the 60s edited book, when I compare the man who haunted himself with nothing but the best, which in, I think I'm right in saying is the first colour film from the 60s in British cinema, which, de- which deals with those themes. Right. Um, specifically and yeah and, and how that character changes basically by the by the by the late 60s um, he's become much more of a destru- destructive archetype basically and I think that um, the man who haunted himself definitely with, with the two Pelhams situation mm. going on uh, brings that out rather nicely and he's um he, he does win in the end though the evil Pelham's not punished like he gets away with it doesn't he well, I think uh, my feeling is, is that that left that's left a bit of a bit of a question mark. Actually, having watched the film a couple of times, I'm I'm still not quite quite sure. It feels like the film has has a real circular narrative. It, it kind of it builds on repetition and circularity. Yeah. Um, so by the by the end, um, I think you're left with a bit of a uh, you know, is he is he not the yeah. same man? Because you have the sort of the repeat of the, the the double heartbeat that kind of comes in again towards the the, yeah. final, the final moment of the film, basically. I don't want to give away the ending for it yeah, for anyone who hasn't watched yeah. it, but there is yeah there is a kind of callback and a kind of ambiguity about it, I think. But yeah, the evil Pelham just effectively outsmarts the good one. And we were talking about me and Adrian uh, before you came on how amazing Roger Moore is at being totally and utterly boring and like unsexual in every way as good Pelham and then as evil Pelham you see the eyebrow and he's like oh yes hello (laughs) (laughs) yeah I'm I'm back basically (laughs) yeah Yeah, absolutely um I'm I'm sure you've discussed this that this was um you know before Roger Moore's stint as James Bond Mm, yeah um, after after his role in The Saint yeah it's a nod towards where he's going to go in the future isn't it really um, yeah, and where he's kind of, he sticks with that character almost in his subsequent work, doesn't he, as Bond? He does, yeah. yes. And yeah. with this film, it's interesting to imagine what would have happened if he hadn't have become Bond, if this was the start of his film career as an interesting leading man and character actor. And 
whether he would have his career would have enabled him to do a lot more um, a wider variety of roles. I mean, once he did Bond, that was basically it. He was just playing variations of that mm. for the rest of time. <laughs> I know. But maybe this film, if it had been a success and he hadn't have done Bond, he could have done some really good stuff. I mean, not that he didn't, but you know what I mean. He could have well, done very I different mean, things. Yeah, he felt, I think he might have felt that way about it, reflecting mm. on, because he did say that, yeah, this was my favourite film, The Man Who Haunted Himself, because I got to act and never got to <laughs> act properly again. I know. <laughs> he, he, he even said it at the time. So in the, in the press book release of the, when the film came out, um, he was quoted as saying that it, this was a real role that he was excited about because it's, it's a role that he could get his teeth into and, and test his acting credentials. Um, so he was he was aware at the time that it was um, you know a, a role that he enjoyed and yeah as you said he reflected on that later in his career as well. Mm. It's, it's a great performance. I mean I think I think actually despite the criticism of the visual effects, <laughs> um, you can actually say he's he's actually the the, the, the character the, the actor that the character that holds the film together. Oh yeah, mm. totally. Um, you know if you don't have empathy for him, then I don't think the film would hold up as well as it does. Mm. Uh, he makes some dodgy decisions, but I think we're more or less with him. I I always I felt more with the evil Pelham though, like I was really loving it, like egging him <laughs> on, like yeah, you go for it. <laughs> so like uh, the the color palettes in the film, I found quite interesting because I think you mentioned this in your chapter. The offices where he works are all like really quite brown, gold, wood paneling, old fashioned, like it's very it's all very brown. And then when he goes to visit his mistress that's very kind of it, I was saying to Adrian it kind of reminded me a bit of giallo because of the color partly mm. the sound as well but her flat is also like she's got leopard print stuff and she's got lots of color so it's like different different scenes with different characters uh, both kind of almost reflect his state of mind but also the world he lives in like business is brown and yeah, yeah then we've got him kind of going off and having dates and things and that's more kind of luscious and kind of plush fabrics and plush colors uh, so it kind of plays around with that a little yeah. bit yeah absolutely and again I think this comes back to um sort of the the sort of the more the more old-fashioned use of color if you want to call it that so the idea that excessive color is exotic it's glamorous but it's also got a hint of being um you know sort of destructive potentially certainly unrespectable which is the, the polar opposite of what Pelham's character is supposed to be and that that builds into the narrative as the film goes on um mm. I just said anything that's connected with the evil Pelham so to speak is is more brash more colorful more garish um but it's a critique of that you know I think I think the film really kind of tries to um, suggest that those traits are not good basically mm -hmm. they're not they're not they're not as desirable as, as they seem and actually that they have a destructive quality to them mm. British cinema in the 60s that was the point where we just transitioned totally to color um, from what I remember so all black mostly black and white in the early part of the decade then to, by the end it was like mostly color right but before it transitioned, I remember whenever there was color sequences in a film, in a black, like sometimes there were color sequences in black and white films, but it color and lots of colors seemed to um, signify, yeah, excess or uh, for fantasy sequences, they tended to use a lot of color. And I think you've made that link elsewhere as, as well for films in that period. Yeah, definitely. Color used to sort of explore, and, it, and it's definitely the, we're talking about mostly the male psyche here, um, but um, <laughs> so, um, from that time, so f I guess films, oh, I'm trying to think now, 
where it's used like um here we go around the mulberry bush i think i think being a good example of that that came mm. out in 1968 mm. i think that's right um again using color as sort of these flamboyant um fantasy sequences but anything like that where you where um exploration of the mind is used i think color kind of really kind of comes out into its own um so even films like um the ipcris files as an, as an mm. example mm. of that i was also yeah. thinking of the uh, the prisoner which, oh, has yeah. some, which has a lot of sort of wild color sequences like that <laughs> Absolutely. And again, I link, I, talk, I mentioned The Prisoner in my chapter, because I think um, that has a real sort of imprint on the man who haunted himself, not just in the story where you have this sort of potential doppelganger and um, Pelham sort of chasing his own shadow around London, but then also um, in, in the bright, expressive use of colour that comes through as well. Um, I definitely, I, I would imagine that the prisoner was kind of in their minds when Didden and Ralph mm. were coming up with the screenplay for the for the film. Oh, okay, that's interesting. Hmm. I, I would imagine. I don't know for sure, but I would I would imagine <laughs> because the prisoner came out in the late sixties, just before the, the film did, so mm. it wouldn't surprise me. But I think um, in the six, in sort of in the late sixties, in terms of British cinema, that color was was being used to to explore this idea of the male psyche, male identity, the fracturing of that, and you also had sort of the the rise, I guess, of psychedelia during that time as well. Um, mm. And the liquid, is it liquid light um, projection that was used for a lot of films as well? Sort of in what, like in films such as Wonder Wall and, and um, oh, yeah, Separation. Yeah. I didn't make that link, but yeah, the, the whole kind of sequences of light shows and psychedelic stuff in the late 60s. Like there is, what's that film which has a light show, which is kind of similar to The Man Who Haunted Himself? It's... Um, is it the Sorcerers? Is it the Michael Reeves film? Oh, you know, yeah. the one with the, yeah. the young man whose body gets taken over by this mm. old couple and then he's getting his brain kind of, they're taking over his brain and there's lots of colour everywhere. <laughs> I just, yeah, I just thought about that. I can think of a few examples of that uh, from films from like just a couple of years before The Man Who Haunted Himself. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think the fact that the film doesn't necessarily go down that road with those particular techniques and actually it does have this sort of echo back to 40s and 50s cinema is, is quite interesting. I don't, I don't know if that's as a result of Dearden and Ralph being, in, being involved with the production um, or not. It's difficult to find. Um, when I was doing research on the film, I couldn't actually find comments from them at the time about mm. the film. Yeah, I mean, it's like they're associated with a more old-fashioned kind of era of British cinema, I guess. But I think the industry in sort of 1970, after EMI had just taken over um, ABPC mm. and Anglo, like Brian Forbes wrote about his time at EMI Films as a, he was like, this is, you know, the, the board of directors I work with are just so old-fashioned, they're old guard, they're not open to new ideas, they're not open to change. Like mm. that was his perspective. So there's a sense of like, industry stagnation or a certain old way of doing things and it's not able to respond to actually what the audience might prefer yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's quite sad really in that respect because I guess Brian Forbes was trying to create a new program of exciting films for younger audiences around mm -hmm. this time as well and um, it kind of fell flat I think because a lot of those films that were produced including The Man Who Haunted Himself just weren't successful they weren't uh, they, they weren't box office successes I think at that time it was only was it only the railway children was one of the, like the, the major mm. successes maybe the go-between 
as well. There's a good bit from Brian Forbes' autobiography where he's he's not kind about yeah like his time at EMI, but he's he's talking about the the people who run it, and he describes the time when he just turned up to work wearing something that wasn't a three piece suit, and his colleagues were like. Yeah, what are you doing? What are you wearing? And he he wrote in his autobiography, I don't know what they were talking about. It was a perfectly good safari suit. <laughs> <laughs> and it just sums it all up, really, like that clash of tastes <laughs> and ethos. <Nice>. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, speaking of safari suits, that was obviously something that Roger Moore would become very comfortable in. But um, I really loved, and we, I think we did talk a little bit about this earlier, the the suit that he wears, when, you know, good Pelham, realizes that he needs to change his ways if he's going to get rid of this doppelganger and he does it by wearing the most amazing suit oh god it's so good like pink tie and brings color into that brown paneled office for the first Mm -hmm. time absolutely yeah and again he gets he basically gets um uh, chastised for it i guess he gets you know that's that becomes the stick on which to finally beat him at the end you know the the other the, the pelham's I don't know how much you've said about the film, but basically, oh, you know, it's the, fine. The, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> it's 50 years old. Now, the statute of limitations is, is passed. <laughs> but, but the idea that would he, would he ever wear that kind of suit, you know, with, with, the, with the pink shirt and the garish tie and, 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 and the brown jacket, you know, the, the uh, tan jacket, you know, would he, would he ever wear that? That's not him. That's not who he is. Mm. Again, linking colour with, with sort of a, a denouement of character, really. Mm. And maybe saying something about masculinity, possibly. It's the pink shirt and the badly fitting kind of suit. Um, but yeah, he's like, he's adopting another persona. He's not being authentic and therefore he's punished. Even though the psychologist, he's just doing what the psychologist told him. But he's just, he lacks, he lacks a lot of original thought and capacity to adapt to things. And it just, it doesn't work out for him. <laughs> yes, sad. No, no, it really doesn't. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a uh, we've had a really good chat and covered a lot of the stuff that I really wanted to cover about the film uh so thank you so much for coming along and chatting to us oh you're welcome thank you so much yeah. for inviting me it's been it's been fun to to revisit a film that um that I really I, I frankly enjoy and I know it was I, um <laughs> I know it was critically lambasted at the time and, and hasn't really you know had much coverage since then but um hopefully it's getting to new audiences now thank you thank, thank you. you so much yeah, thank you Okay, before we get to the end of the episode, I wanted to mention some feedback and some comments that we've received uh, from our last episode. Um, we actually got some from your friend and mine, Katie Manning, who uh, has, yeah, so we talked about Katie Manning in the last episode, and um, she got word of this through friends of listeners and actually got a message back. Um, so a friend of the podcast asked Katie Manning if she'd be interested in coming on to talk to us about Eskimo Nell. So this is her reply. She said, I'm really sorry. Please apologize to our chums. So that's that's us. But I really have so little recall of Eskimo Nell. I was only involved for a couple of days at most. Anna Quayle, Christopher Timothy and Christopher Biggins were only involved for a very few days. We all used to hang out in McCready's late night. I was at the Apollo at the time. And we were doing the old help a mate thing. So very sorry. I really can't help in any way. She says, she's, I've, you've got the quote here. She's not actually seen it either. 
No. <laughs> Eskimo she, uh, she doesn't remember seeing the whole thing, but she's sure it was bonkers. It was bonkers, yeah. yeah. Um, I met Katie Manning. Do you want to hear my Katie Manning story? Yes. Um, well, I mean, I don't have a full story. I just wanted to do uh, uh, I know a person <laughs> thing. But um, I did meet her at a Doctor Who convention once because I used to go to a fair few of these. So whenever a Doctor Who actor comes up in one of these films, generally I will have met them oh, if they're still around. Yeah. Um, but she's cool. Like She's really friendly and chatty yeah. and lovely. It's funny that... Um... She doesn't really have much memory of it. But I suppose it was a very busy time yeah. for most of these people. They were, like she said, she was doing theatre and probably television and did all sorts of stuff. So. It would have been a few days shooting, like, you know, 50 years yeah. ago. So I'm not surprised she doesn't remember yeah. it. No, it's fair enough. But her scenes are very funny, especially when she's doing the film sequences with Christopher Biggins. Mm. And, yeah, uh, she's good value. Yeah. Uh, we also received an email from Darren Evanson, again, who um, contacted us after our first episode. So um, he was pleased to hear his email discussed. If you would also like to hear your emails discussed, then please do write to us. He also is going to have another look at Eskimo Nell. He says, the British sex comedy has been on my viewing radar for many years, and I agree that Carry On Emmanuel is probably the worst of its ilk. It is pretty terrible, although there are definitely worse British sex comedies than that one. <laughs> and uh, he's also suggested that maybe we could talk about Italian low-budget sci-fi in future episodes. And he mentioned Star Crash and The Humanoid as potential offerings. <laughs> um, but no, don't worry, Laura, if you're not that keen, uh, that's fine. I've already written about uh, Humanoid on my blog anyway. Um, and Star Crash is another film that I'll just start name dropping about people I know from that movie. So it's probably best that we don't do it. <laughs> but anyway, thank you, Darren, for getting in touch. If you would also like your emails to be talked about, please do get in touch with us on uh, secondfeaturespod at gmail.com or tweet us at secondfeatures. You could also go and check us out on YouTube and leave us a comment over there. Um, well, that is, I think, all from us for our, uh, for this podcast. Uh, stay tuned and we'll announce what the subject of the next podcast will be. Um, I hope you all enjoyed listening and uh, I hope you all enjoyed the discussion about Manny Haunted himself. If you want to see it, I think you can get it on Prime. That's where I watched it. But also mm -hmm. Network have a, a Blu-ray release, which also has the commentary by Brian Forbes and uh, Roger Moore. Uh, so, yeah, if, I think that's still available on, the, on their website. Uh, yeah. So there are ways that you can watch this. Um, yeah, but I, I, hope, I think um, yeah, we both really recommend the film. I think it's fair to say. Yeah, absolutely. People should watch it. If you like Roger Moore at all, then watch it. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> okay. And I think that's probably it. Smooth. Bye for now. Bye-bye. <laughs> We're so good at endings. Uh -huh.